Our sermon passage is 2 Corinthians 9, 6 through 15. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he decides in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor, his righteousness abounds forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but it is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. While they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Well, friends, here it is. The dreaded building campaign sermon. <laughs> uh, as you know, uh, we are hoping to raise money to build a larger meeting space in the lawn right here to our north. Uh, the idea is a uh, this first phase would be a larger meeting hall that could seat just short of 500 people. Uh, more parking and a sort of larger entryway so that you could enter the building from either side. Uh, that project will cost somewhere between five and six million dollars and in God's provision we already have about 1.6 million in the bank designated for the project. Uh, we probably need to get about to the halfway mark to move forward. That means raising at least another million dollars and so that's what I want to talk with you about this morning in, in a way. Now I did the math. I think I've preached about 750 sermons from this pulpit. And to my memory, this is the first time I've done something like this, specifically setting out to talk about giving money to the church. And so this has required a bit of soul searching, a bit of reflection for me this week. If you're reluctant to hear this sermon, I promise you I was more reluctant to preach it in some ways. And so I thought about why it is that we feel this reluctance, why you might be feeling some low-level dread, and why I this week was feeling reluctant. And I, I came up with three reasons. First, I think these kinds of sermons sometimes torture the Bible in order to make it fit our circumstances. They take texts from the Bible, like in Exodus, where we see the people of Israel bringing their treasure to build the tabernacle, or the people in Nehemiah's day sacrificing in order to build the temple, or Jesus warning against greed and covetousness. We take those true statements and we apply them to our current circumstances in a way that's honestly not appropriate or honest. And we just kind of hope no one will notice the little shell game that we just played. So we want to build a larger meeting space on the North Lawn. We're not building a tabernacle designed by God. We're not rebuilding the temple that was destroyed as a result of our sin. And while Jesus does warn us against greed and covetousness, that doesn't at all mean that you should give to this specific building project. And so what I don't want to do this morning is take a text of scripture and torture it to make you feel like you should give money to this project. 
The second thing that bothers me is that these kinds of sermons always feel like a bit of a wasted opportunity. Right? We only get to meet together once a week, and I'm hesitant to spend the whole time talking about money. Plus, what about the visitors who are with us this morning? What about people who are with us this morning who aren't followers of Christ? What about children who may not have anything to contribute? Are we really going to waste their time talking about a building that we don't expect them to contribute towards? And the third thing that gives me pause and might be giving you pause right now is that these kinds of messages usually tend towards something between manipulation on the one hand, just sort of outright manipulation, and on the other hand, just a sort of subtle motivation by guilt. And of course, no one likes being treated that way. No one likes being made to feel guilty. And even more importantly, that seems to be the exact opposite of the message of Jesus Christ. The good news of Jesus, we thought about even last week in our gathering, is that we come with empty hands and he fills them. The good news is that his love for us is not in any way conditioned on anything that we do. God loves us because he's made a gracious choice to set his love on us in Christ. And so something feels wrong about trying to build a larger building for the proclamation of the gospel by raising money for it through guilt and pressure. So, my goal this morning is to try and avoid all three of those pitfalls. I want to try and bring the text of 2 Corinthians 9 that Mackenzie just read for us. I want to try to bring it to bear on our circumstances in a manner that does justice to the ways that it is uh, both similar and different uh, from our circumstances. I want to try to do justice to the way that the situation that Paul is talking about is in some ways different from what we're trying to do and in some ways similar. And I want to talk about broader principles that I hope are helpful to you, even if you're not someone who will be giving any money to this particular project. I think my biggest goal is to free you from any sense of guilt or pressure. Uh, my hope is that whether or not you ever give a penny to see this building built, my, goal, my hope and my goal for this sermon is that at the end of it, you will be delighting in the goodness and generosity and love that God has shown to you in Christ. So with that said, by way of introduction, let me begin, not in 2 Corinthians 9, but let me begin by telling you the story of the Apostle Paul's collection for the church in Jerusalem, because that's really what lies behind the passage that Mackenzie just read. It's going to take a little bit, but if you go back to the book of Acts, you see that very early on in the history of the Christian church, there arose a controversy. There was a sort of early foundational dispute you see, Jesus was a Jew, and he went around Jewish regions and, for the most part, collected Jewish people as his followers. And then after his sacrificial death on the cross and his resurrection, something happened that no one seemed to see coming, though perhaps they should have. And that is Gentiles, non-Jews, started becoming followers of Jesus as well. And that created a couple of problems. One was a social problem. Uh, pious Jews did not associate or get along well with Gentiles. Gentiles were the enemy. Gentiles were the problem. Uh, they were not people with whom a Jew could be in happy fellowship. And so there's this social problem. How do we have Jewish believers and Gentile believers? The other problem was a religious problem. The presence of Gentile followers of Jesus forced a decision on a crucial issue. Did being a Christian mean being a Jew also? Did you have to be circumcised 
and follow the dietary laws of Judaism if you're going to be a Christian? You can see how that would be a kind of foundational question to answer. Well, God sent the Apostle Paul into the middle of this controversy. And Paul, as was his way, led with his chin. He was the ultimate Jew. At one point, he refers to himself as the Hebrew of Hebrews. Paul was a strict observer of the law. He, before Christ, took 100% of his identity from being a Jew. And so when he met the risen Jesus on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9, he was perhaps the least likely person on earth to be sent to the Gentiles with a message of God's love and forgiveness. But that's exactly what happened. That's how the church in Corinth that we've been thinking about in our Sunday morning sermons, that's how that church was planted. Because Paul was going around Gentile areas preaching about salvation, the salvation that could be found only in Jesus. And Paul was utterly convinced that Gentiles did not need to become Jews in order to follow Christ. He taught that we are made right with God through faith in Christ alone, not through any obedience to the law, not through any sort of conformity to Jewish customs. And so he taught that in the Christian church, Jew and Gentile were brought together into one new body. All right, that's all well and good. But not everybody was convinced. You can read Paul's letter to the churches in Galatia if you want to learn more about that. But things really come to a head in Acts chapter 15 where a meeting is called between Paul and the leaders of the church, of the church in Jerusalem. The church of Jerusalem was the flagship congregation. It had the really important leaders like Peter and James and John. And it was, understandably, since it was in Jerusalem, full of Jewish believers. And so there was kind of a sort of mega meeting of all the sort of leaders of the church to decide what to do with these Gentiles who were coming to Christ. And the conclusion there in Acts 15 was that, in fact, Gentiles did not need to become Jews in order to be Christians. And friends, it's hard to overstate the importance of that decision for the fate of the church. Here's how Paul summarized the results of that meeting in Galatians chapter 2. We read there. And when James and Cephas, so that's another name for Peter, when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised, that is to the Jews. Now listen, only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. So this sort of council in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15, it resolves the religious question. You don't need to be a Jew in order to follow Jesus. And now they address the social question. They said, Paul, listen, ask the Gentiles to remember the poor. Ask them to remember their poor brothers and sisters here in Jerusalem. We know that a terrible famine struck the region during the, the reign of the emperor Claudius, the Roman emperor, in the early 50s AD. And so this was a critical issue at that time. Now, the people of Jerusalem were suffering in a terrible famine. And so the idea was that the church would build a sense of solidarity and love by having these Gentiles, these former enemies, care for and provide for their Jewish brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. Yeah, they don't need to become Jews, Paul. But when you go to them, ask them 
to remember the poor. Ask them to remember their brothers and sisters in Jerusalem who are suffering. The Apostle Paul, he says there that he was eager to do it, and that's exactly what we see unfold. We see that he devoted himself energetically to the task of collecting money from the new Gentile churches that he had started, right? Churches like Corinth and Galatia, churches in Macedonia, and even some that he had never met before, like the church in Rome. Paul energetically devoted himself to the task of collecting money from these Gentile churches for the church in Jerusalem. He was very concerned as the quote-unquote apostle to the Gentiles. He was very concerned that the Gentile believers rise to the occasion. He was very concerned that their money reach Jerusalem safely and in such a way that there was no doubts that it, that it had gotten there uh, in, in the way that it was intended. So at the end of 1 Corinthians, he writes this to the church. He says, now, concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each one of you, I'm sorry, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send it, I will send to those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. So here at the end of his letter, where hopefully we'll get in a few months as we work our way through the book of 1 Corinthians on Sunday mornings. Paul is telling members of the church to put aside some money each week for this collection. He's planning on coming to them to sort of pull all the money together, and he doesn't want everyone sort of scrounging for loose change and, and, and fiddling around in the, the sofa cushions looking for money when he arrives. But there was a problem. You and I have been in the book of 1 Corinthians long enough to know that there was tension between Paul and the church there. And in fact, the, the tensions only got worse after the letter that we call 1 Corinthians was delivered. In that sort of period between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, everything got worse between Paul and the church because the church really didn't listen very well to 1 Corinthians at all. Shortly after Paul sent that letter to them, things deteriorated uh, much faster than we could have anticipated. And so Paul went and he made a brief visit trying to sort of go in person and put things right. It seems that a member of the, the church had sort of challenged his apostolic authority, and the congregation had done nothing about it. So Paul, after sending 1 Corinthians to them, he went and visited himself. He calls this, in 2 Corinthians, his painful visit. The church was split. Some of the members were openly opposing him, and so Paul says in 2 Corinthians that he just left. He just left rather than to stay and fight and further provoke his enemies. So he left Corinth, and he left this church that he loved so much, and he sent them another letter by Titus, his trusted friend. He calls it his severe letter in 2 Corinthians. And he calls the church to discipline that man who had attacked him. And praise God, that severe letter had its intended effect, and there was, it seems, genuine repentance in the church. And according to 2 Corinthians 7, when Paul finally met up with Titus and Titus told him the result of this letter, he was incredibly happy. But things got complicated again. 2 Corinthians 11 tells us that some super apostles came into the church preaching a different gospel message and suggesting to them that Paul was in fact not someone they could trust. And it seems that at least part of the case that they were making against Paul was this desire that he had to raise money for the church in Jerusalem. Uh, we know from 1 Corinthians 1 that Paul actually stopped into Corinth twice to collect money. And some people said, look, he's, he's greedy. 
He's extorting us. He's being shady. He's doing something weird. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1, I just actually wanted you to have a second experience of grace. I actually was jealous for you to be able to give more for your sake, not mine. It seems at least uh, we read here in 2 Corinthians 9, Paul had sent Titus and a few others back to Corinth to make sure that their offering was ready when Paul came. He didn't, he didn't want to show up with the Macedonian believers who were carrying their gift to Jerusalem and, and find that, in fact, the, the Corinthians weren't ready. And so it seems that some in Corinth are like, this guy is always talking about money. Paul's always trying to raise funds. He's being self-serving. He's, he's pressuring us. He's being crafty and deceitful in his appeals for generosity. And so it's in that context that we see Paul appeal to the church in our passage for this morning. Paul wants them to live and to give generously and sacrificially. And so we get to observe here in chapter 9 something like an apostolic fundraising campaign. And I think all of that background is really important because if we're going to be faithful to this text, we need to be honest about ways that our situation this morning is different from the one that's being described here. So when we talk about raising at least a million dollars for a new building, we are not talking about a project that has apostolic authority behind it. Right, the elders of this church are all agreed that building this new building is a good idea. And from our conversations as a congregation, it seems like most of the congregation thinks this is a good idea as well. And that's, that's not nothing. But if we're being honest, it's not the same thing as having Peter, James, John, and Paul say, hey, you guys need to collect this money. And when we're talking about raising $1 million for a new building... We're not talking about a huge step forward in dissolving the ancient enmity between Jews and Gentiles. Right? If we don't build this building, it is unlikely that anyone in Jerusalem is going to starve. It is unlikely that the purposes of God in creating his church are going to be frustrated in any way. So we have to have the humility to say it's not the same thing. But I do think there are some ways that we can connect what we're planning to do with what Paul was planning to do. And I think because of that, we can learn from his instructions to the church in Corinth. Our mission as a church, Sterling Park Baptist Church, is to mature and multiply. But that's just a way that we summarize what Jesus told his disciples to do in Matthew 28. He says, go, make disciples, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teach them to do all that I've commanded you. Our mission as a church is to help Christians mature in Christ, to grow in their understanding of and their love for and obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. And our mission is to multiply, to see more people come to faith in Jesus, to see more churches planted locally and around the world. And by God's grace, that's what we've seen happen over the past 16 years. We've seen people come to Christ, including some of you, We've seen people grow in their understanding of and love for and obedience to the Lord Jesus. And we've seen churches planted. Five here in Northern Virginia. What we hope will become a whole network of churches amongst Zulu people in South Africa, as well as a team on the ground in Macedonia working with Albanians. And if I'm being honest, I think that's really good fruit for a church our size. And I can say that because there's no credit to us in it. It's not the result of brilliant leadership or unusual wisdom or skill on our part. It's simply a matter of the Lord working through us as we have tried in, in 
faltering and, and at times weak ways to be faithful stewards of the opportunities and the resources that he's given to us. And one of the resources that God has given to us is this building that we're sitting in right now. You can certainly have a church without a building. But it's no coincidence that churches throughout the millennia and in all sorts of different places have found that having a building is really useful. Right? A building is like a trellis. So at our, in our home, we have a pot of honeysuckle that sits by the front door. And if you know anything about honeysuckle, it grows quickly. And so we've put up a little trellis there that can sort of facilitate the growth of that vine to keep it from just sort of flopping all over the deck. And a building for a church is a bit like that. The building is not the point. No one should care about what the building looks like particularly. No one cares what a trellis looks like. But a well-conceived, well-designed, well-made trellis can aid the growth of the vine, just as the trellis in front of our door helps the honeysuckle to grow. In the same way, I think a well-constructed building can serve the growth of the gospel. We'd like a bigger meeting space so that more people can gather on Sunday mornings to worship and hear the gospel and grow in Christ. We'd like to build a bigger building so that we have more people to send out in church planting, so that we have more resources to support gospel ministry in places like Dubai and Lisbon and South Africa and Macedonia, so that we have the resources to train pastors and church planters and send them out to spread the gospel all over the world. We plan to build a bigger meeting space in the hopes the Lord might give us more opportunities, more resources to steward and invest for his purposes. So I think that in that sense, there is a point of contact between the pictures on just the other side of this wall and what Paul is, is asking the Corinthians to do uh, in 2 Corinthians 9. In both cases, believers are being asked to contribute to gospel purposes that will probably serve others more than it will ever serve them. Right, just think about it for a second. The brothers and sisters in previous decades who gave sacrificially to build this meeting space that we're sitting in, as far as I know, they're not here anymore. You and I come in each week and we benefit from their generosity and their love for the Lord. They invested in the work that we're doing without even knowing us, without even seeing the fruit of their giving. And according to the Lord's teaching in Matthew chapter 6, they will receive their reward uh, from their Father in heaven. We might not know who contributed generously to build this building, but I promise you our Heavenly Father knows. And so, brothers and sisters, we have a similar opportunity to invest our money now in ways that will perhaps benefit us somewhat. Right? It would be great to have a church that was sort of designed more to, to uh, accommodate the way that we uh, worship on Sunday mornings. It'd be great to have a baptistry actually in the same room, right? So we didn't have to all traipse down the hall and get the floor wet, right? It would be great to be able to sort of come forward for the Lord's Supper without a massive traffic jam. But friends, let's be honest. The plan would be for this building to far outlive us. We don't know what the future holds, but no one builds a building that's going to last 20 years. Right? Our hope is that this generation will pass away and the, the building that we hope to build will still be here. And so in that sense, the fruit of our giving will last for many decades, perhaps even until the Lord Jesus himself returns. And so I think, again, that's where we can tether our thinking about giving into what Paul is telling the Corinthian church. In many ways, it's the same thing. 
God's people giving to bless others for the sake of Christ. All right. I think we're ready now to actually look at what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. In verses 1 to 5, he introduces again the idea of the collection of money for the church in Jerusalem. And then in, chap- in verses 6 to 16, uh, he drills down and he helps them. I'm sorry, 6 to 15. He drills down and he helps them to think more carefully about their giving. And so with the remaining time that we have, I'd like us just to, to look at two things that Paul tells us here. Uh, first, I want to think together about the character of Christian generosity. And I'm going to spend probably about 90% of my remaining time on that. And then, very briefly, the second thing I want us to see is the result of Christian generosity. So again, that'll be brief at the end. So the character of Christian generosity and the result of Christian generosity. So let's look at the character there, uh, starting in verse 7. Paul says, Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Paul's here telling the Corinthians and us what manner we should give in. He he tells us two ways we shouldn't give, reluctantly, under compulsion. That's to say, Paul says, "I, I don't want you to give if you're going to give begrudgingly, if you're going to have a sour expression. Don't give if it feels like a massive loss to you. Don't give because you feel like your arm's being twisted. Don't give just so you don't seem miserly to other people. Instead, Paul says it should be a heart decision. You should give what you really want to give. And so it's immediately clear here, when we talk about giving, that the the issue, what really matters here, is not the amount that you give. It's the posture of your heart. right? And if you're familiar with the Bible, that should come as zero surprise. Remember, Jesus honored the widow who gave two small copper coins over and above all the wealthy who were putting their treasure in the temple collection boxes because she gave out of her poverty, right? She was not giving out of what she could spare, but she was giving from her heart. I think about it time and time again. Jesus insists that what honors God was not merely the performance of religious duty. Here, God, here's your money but rather a heart that truly loves him. And so it is with our money. It's better not to give than to give with a sour and unwilling heart. God isn't impressed by that kind of reluctant generosity. I love the way John Piper puts it in in one of his books. He he says, you know, look, what what if it's your anniversary? And so you're a husband and you go home on your anniversary and your wife greets you in the in the entryway to your home and you say to her, well, It's customary on an anniversary to wish you happy anniversary, so there you go, happy anniversary. It's also customary to give flowers, so I stopped at the grocery store and got you some. And I suppose you'll be wanting dinner, so let's get in the car and go. (laughs) Formally, you've done everything right. You wished a happy anniversary, you brought flowers, you went to dinner, but no wife is going to feel loved and delighted in. Right, in the same way, when God calls us to give, it's not a here kind of approach but God wants our hearts he wants Paul says there a cheerful giver in fact at the end of verse 7 it says that God loves a cheerful giver 
I don't know about you, that just seems like amazingly good news to me. I find being a Christian complicated at points. Sometimes I find it hard to know exactly what to do and how I can best please the Lord as a parent, as a husband, as an employee. But here you get this wonderful clarity. Here is a something that you can be sure beyond the shadow of a doubt brings pleasure to our Lord. One thing you can be sure elicits the approval of your heavenly Father. God loves it when we give cheerfully, happily, joyfully. So when we ask, how should we go about giving to build a new meeting space, the answer is really easy. We should give cheerfully. We should give happily. We should give joyfully. My guess is that if we all gave that way, the actual amount that we need wouldn't be an issue. But that's easy to say. It it raises a really obvious question, and that is, how do I become a cheerful giver? Maybe if you're honest, you're not. You're not a cheerful giver. You're a cheerful spender. You're a cheerful buyer, a cheerful consumer and collector, even even a cheerful saver. Right? Those things are easy to be cheerful about. Those things make us feel happy. But how do you get to be a cheerful giver? I think we'll be helped if we look back to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, just one chapter earlier. So if you look there in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, starting in verse 1, Paul says this. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. So Paul tells us about the example of the churches in Macedonia how they responded to this call to give generously to the relief of the saints in Jerusalem. And Paul said that they did it despite their extreme poverty, despite the fact that they, too, were experiencing a severe test of affliction. Paul says they gave beyond their means. Their poverty somehow overflowed into wealth, into a wealth of generosity. So much so, Paul says, they, they begged for the privilege of giving to the collection. You almost get the sense that Paul, out of his love for them, was trying to kind of calm them down a little bit. Like, guys, you don't don't have very much, but they're like, please, let us give. These Macedonians that Paul talks about here in chapter 8, they ought to be our heroes. This is who we want to be when we grow up. They are the ultimate example of cheerful givers. They are proof Beyond any shadow of a doubt that generosity is not a matter of what's in your bank account, but rather a matter of what's in your heart. But that doesn't exactly answer our question, how do we become cheerful givers? It just shows us that it's possible. What did the Macedonians understand that enabled them to be so ridiculously open-handed with the things that the Lord had given them? Well, Paul tells us, if we keep reading there in chapter 8, he says this, In verses 8 to 9, 
I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. So there it is. How did the Macedonians become cheerful givers? More than that even. How was it that they could give despite their extreme poverty, despite the absence of any social safety net, any public assistance? Well, it seems that they were captivated by the love of Jesus. Jesus, the eternal Son of God who left the riches of heaven. Sapphire-paved courts, we sang earlier, in order to take on human flesh, coming to a stable floor. Jesus, who lived in poverty his whole life, who died without a possession to his name. Jesus, who willingly stepped into the unimaginable suffering of the cross so that you and I could be the recipient of incalculable spiritual riches. Jesus, who did that, not reluctantly, not begrudgingly, but we almost might say cheerfully. According to Hebrews 12, he did it for the joy that was set before him. You see, the Macedonians understood this grace that they had received. They understood how Jesus, their Lord, had given up everything in order to give them everything. And it made them joyful, cheerful givers. After all, being a follower of Christ means being conformed to his image and character. And so it's no surprise that as we walk with him, we begin to reflect his joyful self-giving more and more. So brothers and sisters, the call for us to be cheerful givers is simply a call, I think, to go deeper into the truths of the gospel, to go deeper into the love of Jesus for us. It's a call to let the love of Jesus percolate down deep into our hearts and transform us. I think that's more than enough fuel for us to become cheerful in our generosity. But there's actually more here in 2 Corinthians 9, if we look closely. I think Paul makes two promises for us in this passage, two promises that I think will greatly incentivize our giving and and make it cheerful. The first promise is there in verse 6. He says, the point is this. I'm always glad when the Bible does that. Here's the point, dummy. All right, in case you're not very good at this, this is the point. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Paul's expanding here on a well-known proverb that you reap what you sow. And he's applying it to their situation. Right? The idea isn't complicated. If you're a farmer and you go out and you just sow a little bit of seed, you're just going to get a little bit of crop. Right? But if you sow a lot of seed, you will reap a large harvest. And so Paul doesn't give the Corinthians an amount that they should give. He gives them a principle. He says, when you sow sparingly, haltingly, cautiously, reluctantly, well, you should expect to reap in the same way. The application to the Christian and our giving isn't too hard to understand. If you give sparingly, that's how you reap. But if you seize the opportunities to give bountifully, Well, then you'll reap bountifully. I don't think that we should understand what Paul is saying here in a sort of straight, flat, 
sort of obvious way. I think we have to be careful. I don't think Paul's saying that if you give $500,000 to the building fund, you can expect a giant influx of cash to reward you. Though if anyone wants to try it, I'm willing to give an experiment. (laughs) Rather, Paul is promising us a bountiful reward, one that God has chosen for us. That may, in part, be financial, and we'll get to that in a minute. Right? It shouldn't surprise us if God were to give more money to his children who have shown that they will and can do good things with it. It wouldn't surprise us if the father who only gives good gifts would give more to someone who shows that actually I don't love this more than I love you. That when you give me money, I use it cheerfully for your purposes. But it may not be financial reaping that Paul's talking about here. It may be blessings in other areas of our lives. Right? This bountiful reaping that Paul promises us here, when we sow bountifully, it will certainly, whatever it means in this life, will certainly take place in eternity. That's what the Lord Jesus teaches us in Matthew chapter 6. He says there, do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal, for where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. Brothers and sisters, I think this is such great news. When God calls us to give, he's not a debt collector coming to get his at our expense. I think sometimes that's how we think, and that's why we're not excited about being generous. But in reality, what Paul's telling us here is that when we're called to give, it's an invitation to a greater treasure. It's an invitation to invest what we cannot keep in what we certainly can never lose. It's an invitation from our generous God who delights in loading up the hands of his children with blessings, both now and forever. The second promise Paul makes here is in verses 8 to 11 where we read this. He says, God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. See there in verse 9, Paul quotes from Psalm 112. He is distributed freely. He is given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. And it it sounds like he's talking about God there, doesn't it? But when you actually read Psalm 112, he's actually describing and he's actually referring there to the righteous man, to the person who is generous. And so Paul is reminding us that that when we're generous, this this is what's true of us. When we distribute freely, when we've given to the poor, our righteousness endures forever. That is to say, our good acts, our good deeds, this this act of righteousness that we've done in giving money, it endures forever. It's remembered forever. It has eternal consequences. Paul tells us the reason why we can be so boldly generous is that God will supply all our needs. We don't have to worry that if we give, we won't have enough for ourselves. Because when we're generous, God will make sure that we are enriched in every way so that we can continue to be generous. 
Paul reminds us he's the one who supplies everything. And so it's his joy to multiply your seed for sowing. He will increase the harvest of your righteousness. Paul says he will enrich you in every way so that you can be generous in every way. You see, God's not calling you to figure out on your own how it is you can be generous. God is blessing you so that you can be generous. The Corinthians and the Macedonians didn't have to worry that giving to the saints in Jerusalem would mean that they wouldn't have enough for themselves. Even though, as Paul told us in chapter 8, it was kind of nuts how much the Macedonians gave. In the same way, friends, if God would have us build this building, then you do not have to worry that giving cheerfully will mean that you won't have enough for your family. It seems that there are two large obstacles to our cheerful generosity. The first is the love of money. It's really hard to give money away if you love it. But we have something better to cling to. We have a better treasure. We have a better love in the Lord Jesus. Because when we see his grace, when we see the one who became poor in every way for our sakes, so that we through his poverty might become rich in every way, when we contemplate the generosity of God towards us, while we were still enemies, sending his son, when we remember that God could have simply laid down a law, when he could have given us a command and said, hey, hey, you, you, everything you have is mine, so give it to me. Now, when we remember that instead he comes to us and he bids us in love to give joyfully so that he might load our arms with an even better treasure, when we remember that we reap as we sow, I think suddenly hoarding money and treasuring the things that it can buy and the, the alleged security that it gives, it just doesn't seem that important anymore. It just doesn't seem that lovely. I think the second obstacle to giving is fear. We worry that if we give our money away, we won't have enough. Right? We won't have enough for retirement, for college payments, for a new car or a bigger house. But here, God has promised to take care of us in every way, to enrich us in every way so we can be generous in every way. Now, yeah, that might not look exactly the way you think it ought to look, but God promises good gifts for his children. And so there's never any need to be afraid. Your Father in heaven loves you. Jesus says he knows what you need. And you know that he's never left you or failed you, and he never will. So that's the character of Christian generosity. We ought to be cheerful, gospel-motivated, fearless, bountiful sowers. So as we conclude this morning, let me just very briefly notice, let's notice together the results of Christian generosity. The character of Christian generosity is cheerful. The results are there in verses 12 to 14. He says, For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Here Paul's telling the Corinthians about the results of their giving. He says there in verse 12 that it's supplying the needs of the saints, presumably those saints in Jerusalem. But even more than that, it's overflowing, Paul says, with thanksgiving to God. And you understand that. As the people in Jerusalem experienced God's provision through the gifts given by the Gentiles, they would praise God for his kindness to them. 
they would see that the Corinthians have responded to the gospel with generosity. And Paul says they'll glorify God because of you. How great is that to be the reason why someone else glorifies God? He says they'll long for you and pray for you. You get that also. The people in Jerusalem will naturally remember and love and thank God for the people who helped them in their need. Brothers and sisters, I hope on some level this is already true of us as a church. I think it is. I think there are people in Winchester and in Purcellville and Gainesville in Leesburg. I think there are Spanish-speaking people and Arabic-speaking people here in Sterling. There are Zulu people in South Africa. There are people who have come to Christ and had many of their practical needs met by the love and the generosity of this church. And I expect that they praise God for your generosity and your love and your service. In fact, I know they do. They've told me so themselves. I expect there are people we don't even know who pray for us as a church and who thank God for us and who delight in us. And here's the thing. I think it could be more. I think there's one last motivation for us to give generously and cheerfully to build a new meeting space here. All right, imagine this. We build that building, and as a result, we are able to train more pastors, raise up more church planters. We're able to send and support more church plants here and abroad. And as a result, there are even more people who glorify and thank God for us, and who pray for us. Even more people that we get to rejoice with in heaven because of their, the cheerful generosity of this church right now. Now, I don't know how things work in eternity. But maybe part of the reward God gives us is that we get to see what exactly it is he's done with our life. That we get to see what he's made of our work and of our generosity. Maybe when we get to eternity, we'll get to meet the people who gave generously to build this building, to build this meeting space for us. And we'll be able to rejoice with them and tell them all the things that God did because they were generous. And we'll get to thank them. And we'll get to glorify God that he moved in them in this way. Brothers and sisters, maybe, just maybe, if we build a new meeting space, we will find ourselves on the receiving end of someone else's joy and eternal thanks. Brothers and sisters, that's it. We have a lot of wonderful promises made to us when we're cheerful givers. We are promised the pleasure of our Father in heaven. We are promised that we will reap bountifully. And that God will supply all our needs. We have the hope that God will use our gifts to bring him glory and thanksgiving. And that people, maybe even all over the world, would pray for us and rejoice in us. I hope that makes you excited. I hope that makes you cheerful about the chance to build a bigger meeting space here. So I think as we think about the generosity of God, as we think about our cheerful response to it, the best thing we could do, as always, is to come together to the Lord's table. For here, in the bread and in the cup, we are reminded that our God is a self-giving God. That he's not withheld from us any good thing. Not even the body of his son, which is broken for us on the cross. Not even the blood of his beloved son shed for us on the cross. It's here at the table that we're reminded that whatever we may give, we only ever come to God with empty hands. And he's the one who fills them up. Let's pray together. Oh God, we do delight in your generosity. We, we thank you and we praise you for the ways you've met every one of our needs as individuals, as families, as a church. 
We thank you that you have uh, given us uh, extra so that we might be generous. We pray that you would help us, even as we come to the table now, by the power of your Holy Spirit, to, to really see all that we've received, to see just how rich we've been made uh, by the Lord Jesus and his willingness to become poor for our sake. We pray that you would help us to build this building. If it would be your will, we pray more than anything that you would make us cheerful givers in light of the gospel. And we pray these things because Jesus is worthy of all of our love. Amen.